Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Fast Money starts right now, live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Mark Tepper, Steve Grosso, and Dan Nathan. Ahead on fast, make or break time for Tesla. The company set to report its second quarter delivery numbers any day this week, but after a 30% rally off its lows, has the stock come too far too fast? Plus, Chinese stocks rallying on the back of G20, and one China bull says it could be your best chance to buy the group. He will be here to explain. We start off with the markets. The S&P closing at a new all-time high. The Dow jumping more than 115 points. The Nasdaq and tech up more than 1%. We've seen this story before, the S&P 500 peaking its head above the highs and then failing to launch. So with tariffs off the table for now, is the next leg of the rally all about the Fed. I think it has been all about the Fed. So I don't even think t- tariffs were maybe 20 percent of the story. I think for me, it's, it's about the Fed. The Fed is still in the back pocket of the market. They have that. And the tariff story can only get better from here. So, yes, it's about the Fed. It's about higher markets from here going forward. Why can the tariff story only get better from here? That's what I don't get. Because we've already I, I think that the, we've factored in the negativity on the tariff headlines. We've we've already seen those at worst. Right. Uh-huh. Or you don't agree with that. So well, I, I do. I'll tell you what. So I, I think you're, you're right in terms of headlines. Markets digested months and months, years of headlines. What we don't have are CEOs and the real impact. And when you throw the trade war uh, into a world where leading economic indicators have been basically moving lower for the last 18 months, not just the last few months. So you can make an argument that this trade war has done things to CEOs and to the businesses and to earnings that we still haven't seen yet. But in terms of a market event, Mm -hmm. I I can agree with what Steve said. And in fact, where are we? We're at May 3rd, which was the last time we basically got some good news out of trade right before, I should say, right all time highs, right before uh, President Trump started to tweet. So um, what we have is a little bit more Fed in this environment. But but again, if you look at how bonds reacted today, bonds didn't tell you it's off to the races. The German Bund went to fresh all-time lows, minus 36 bips before uh, rallying a bit. ISM in the U.S., you name it, the macro data points were not good. Yeah. Mark, we also get a lot of earnings before the next Fed meeting, which could be a key determinant. Yeah, and I think, uh, unfortunately, I think this is the earnings season where you're going to start to hear some of that come out on the conference calls that the CEOs are a bit concerned, that they might not have the confidence that they need to execute on their growth plans. And my concern is if we look out to like the fourth quarter earnings estimates, I mean, we're, we're looking at like double digit year over year growth. And I just I don't think that's going to happen. Those are still way too high. They're going to have to come down as they come down. The issue is it's going to exert downward pressure on stocks, and that's going to offset a lot of the positives that we're getting from trade in the Fed. Well, yeah, and so it just depends whether you deem it to be a positive. I don't think anything really happened. There was no there there. It was a, you know, a calculated a situation that happened not too different that we saw at the end of November into the G20 meeting and then declaring some sort of victory. And I just think it's really important that every time the S&P has been above 2,900 over the last year or so, it's had a flush lower and sentiment gets really bullish. Now, the more likely it is to stay up here, fine, then you may have a breakout. You may establish a new range. But I think all this other stuff is really important. You know, if Steve, if the most important thing to you is the Fed, then you better think about why they are have made this 
really historic pivot in such a short period of time to dovishness. And when you see the sort of data sure. that we saw about global PMIs, that should make you nervous if they start cutting into weaker data. Right. That, to me, is the thing that makes the S&P 500 playing for a breakout at 29.50 very good. Right. So, so for me, I think ultimately I do believe it's a negative for the Fed to start cutting now because I don't think they can combat anything. But the market has to adjust to the Fed cutting now, and so they go to the most accommodative spot, which is the equity market, which is a risk-on play. So I don't believe they have enough ammo, and that's why Powell is saying, I'm, I'm dovish, but I might cut. I'm dovish, but I might cut. So July might not happen in your view. July might not happen, and I think the best thing he well, could do is to wait. not let it happen because the markets would sell happen, off. Steve, I think that flush? would be a disaster. Yeah. The markets I think, could sell off, but, but, but I would think that you still have to worry about Oh, what happens when he does cut? What happens when he do, when he does hit the fifty basis points? But but the market the market's basically saying seventy five basis points between now and year end. Yeah. They're basically saying hundred yeah. percent uh, in July. That to me is is would be a major offside. But we did hear. We, we, I, I mean, I don't. But we I don't did know how hear from that. Bullard and we did hear from Powell last week where they're stepping off the gas a little bit on easy money, and it was more of two cuts versus three cuts. Do you so the market the, has to adjust to that. Steve, do you think the market goes higher in that environment when those headlines hit the? T- no, no, I think no. knee-jerk reaction is for the market to sell off if the Fed does not cut. But I also believe that this is keeping the short sellers at bay because you know that cut is coming. You just don't know when it's coming. It's playing Russian roulette with the short sellers. So who steps in front of this train right now and shorts the market? I don't know. Maybe Dan. Well, okay, has it been successful you, you, lately? He, he said that you think there's going to be a flush. Is uh, I, I think there's a very good likelihood over the course of this summer. I mean, think about where we are when we have this sort of rhetoric. I think one thing the president has, tr- uh, has really proven that he is a very bad negotiator with a good hand versus the Chinese who have a bad hand and are doing a very good job in negotiating. Why is the market up at all-time well, highs, Steve, I, I, I'm just saying it is what it is. When you have you know senators from his own party thrashing him on giving away stuff that you don't need to give away just to get out of a G20 meeting. Yeah, the Huawei thing. And it goes back to ZTE last year. These are really important parts. It's not about a bilateral trade agreement. It's not about selling chips to the, the Chinese and then buying back the equipment and plugging it into our infrastructure. But okay? if we're making and I'm not, I'm not being combative with you. I'm just saying yeah. if the market should not be at all-time highs. Be combative with them. It, yeah, the, the market I mean, should not. Split them so, up. So the market should not be at all-time highs. I'm looking face forward, just yeah, yeah, waiting yeah, for yeah, the whatever. split. So the, 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 the market should not be at all-time highs if he was doing such a terrible job at negotiating. So everyone said that the, the Chinese had an unlimited time horizon. That goes out the window. The markets are up. They're all time highs. The Chinese just got some massive concessions here. They got some massive concessions that our chip guys can start selling back to Huawei. What do they have to do in return? Nothing. An unspecified amount of farm products. So the market should have sold off. So, so folks, let's let's get to stocks because ultimately it it doesn't sound like anybody's terribly constructive on cyclicality here. So what's going to work? What's going to work is what's been working. Tech? And, and, well, I I tell you what's going to outperform tech, I continue to think, are going to be... Either consumer discretionary names that are, you know, big cash flow generating businesses that can be uh, somewhat defensive in this environment. We've gone through fast food at nauseum. We've gone through things like uh, Starbucks, Coca-Cola. Uh, I think they're going to continue to work. If you think about that, which has had an asymmetric or underperformed uh, response to the month of June, which was 9% down and basically 9% up. Look at Japan. 
Look at other parts of the world where, and I know we're going to have this chat, so I'll leave that one alone, but, but the exporting countries of the world, if you believe that there's just some short-term relief, should outperform, and, and, and even Apple. Um, again, you can say this is a, a company-specific underperformance, but most people tied this stock to the trade war. And if we're back where we were on May 3rd, uh, I think Apple should be there too. Yeah. So, so dating back to September 30th of, of last year, I mean, this has definitely been a defensive rotation, right? So money's come out of cyclicals, it's moved into defensives. And I think as we start to make more and more progress on the trade deal, we see a Fed cut or two, I think you're going to see that rotation reverse course. And I think you're going to see money start to flow out of defensives into cyclicals, and there could be a good opportunity there. It's not here right now today, but I think it's coming. So such, which specific ones? So uh, the tech sector in particular. Okay. I mean, the highest percentage, they have the highest exposure to revenues from China right now, so I think that's, uh, that's the way to play yeah, it. I, I would go cyclical. I would go with the chemical plays that have been beaten up, like a West Rock. I would stick with Lennar that was beaten up last week. KB Holmes that reported better after Lennar got its head taken off. So I would stick with a lot of those plays that don't seem uh, intuitive to the overall market, but I would go back to cyclical plays. Yeah, and I'll just make one point about some tech spending or some earnings that we've seen over the last month. We saw Salesforce, we saw Oracle, and what they're telling us is that in those spaces, they're not seeing a hit to enterprise spending right now. So those are some areas that look, I think, you know, generally insulated right now. Even despite the valuation. Well, yeah, and we, you know, on Friday on OA, you were not here, Mel, but we were talking about Microsoft, you know, trading at about 27 times, trailing two and a half PE to growth. These stocks are getting really expensive yeah. here, too. And, you know, you guys talk about Apple all the time. I can't remember the last time Apple had a forward multiple in the high teens. It deserves it. Okay, but I'm, I'm just I mean, saying, it's, but it's historically, we will, but we will look back at some point when the S&P is much lower and say, oh, you know what, we should have been crowding in trillion dollar market cap names that were trading at multiple that were really, really stretched. Well, okay, so you, there was a lot of things that were implied in your statement. Yeah. Not, they're not even implied, they're stated. You're saying when the S&P is a lot lower, yeah. Apple's going to look like a bad trade. Uh, to me, it's a defensive company that I would put in line with those other companies I was talking about. So again, uh, significant, McDonald's. significant capital markets opportunity, a, a lot of cash. They can basically have it put underneath the stock, but but the transition is underway. I think the, the bad headlines in terms of their handset business services are, are 40 billion. Services uh, $40 billion. Maybe they're Maybe they're underappreciated well, no, on but the see, market. Here, market. I, I, can I just explain one thing. I, I kind of disagree on that whole thesis, okay? Because if our consumer is keeping the entire global economy at float, all those names that you just mentioned, if we do go into recession, if we do have risk assets come in, are going to get hit much harder than some of these like, enterprise which companies which that ones? are like have a massive secular. Well, Apple for one. Okay, I mean, we've so already seen that they're not growing their handsets. So if their installed base is not growing at some point, and they have blockages of certain geographies where they can't be, aka China, okay, then you have an issue. Right, you have an issue with growth. That's just 100. percent We can agree to disagree on Apple. Are you also also saying that the other big companies that have outperformed, like a Coca-Cola, like a Pepsi, like a Starbucks? Yeah, like I, a I think Coca-Cola is ridiculous. Big, a okay. sugar water company trading at 25 times. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, just it makes absolutely no sense. Okay, but look at other times. We we've had plenty of opportunities in the last five or six years where people thought we were actually getting into a recession, and there was it was time to be running into defensive names, and these names outperform every time. What, I mean, look at every one of those stocks that you just mentioned have had peak the trough declines that doubled the worst decline that the S&P has had in the last few years. I mean, Apple sold off 40%. Starbucks sold off 40%. No, what I'm saying is all those consumer names right. actually get hit much harder when things get nasty in the broad market. We didn't even have a split of you guys, so I'm just going to move on at this point. Good discussion. Our next guest says to enjoy this rally while last because this could be as good as it gets for a while. Let's bring in Lori Calvacina, head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC. Lori, great to have you back. 
Thanks for having me. Um, you're in the midst of this conversation. So I was going to ask about your target. I'll put that off for a minute. But in terms of this debate on where you put your money in this market environment, because we are pretty much at your target. Right. Where would you go? So we like utilities. We like consumer staples. We like financials. The thing that all three of those have in common are dividends. And what we've historically seen is that when you're going into easing mode by the Fed, stocks with high dividend yields outperform the non-dividend payers pretty strongly. We've also seen that the consumer sectors generally act pretty well in an easing environment, as do the financials. X the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. So Dan's point about valuations of, say, a Coca-Cola sugar water company, what is, what's yeah. it trading at? 20, 25, 25 times. 25 times. Does that concern you? I mean, is there a point yeah. at which even though this is the time in the cycle where you want to be in these names, that it doesn't work. Well, what's interesting to me about consumer staples is if you look at the valuations beyond PE, they actually still look pretty undervalued versus the S&P on things like price to book or price to cash flow. Yeah, so it's, you know, the PEs do give you some sticker shock, but if you dig a little bit deeper, expand beyond the PEs, you can come up with a valuation case pretty easily, frankly, easier than what you can come up with in the REITs or the utilities. So when you take a look at the sectors that you like, it's, it's defensively tilted. So I, what yeah. does that mean in terms of your view of the economy? Well, I would say the financials is more of a cyclical okay, bet. True. It's where we see a lot of opportunity on that side. And we do within some of the other sectors, like industrials, we think machinery looks pretty de-risked. We like the brick-and-mortar retailers within the consumer discretionary space. So I think you can pick your spots cyclically, but we w- do want to be pretty evenly balanced between the cyclicals and the defensives at this point. Lori, if you, if you think about the, the rest of the world, um, is there a trade that is more interesting after there's certainly been underperformance by, you know, I was talking about Japan, uh, and ultimately you can make an argument that the, the earnings revision ratios in Japan and the dividend payouts are, are much better than they've ever been. Well, you know, I haven't looked at Japan specifically, but what I can tell you is that the U.S., if you look at global equity funds, it's an extraordinarily crowded trade. We saw a little bit of rotation out late last year, and yeah. then it popped right back up this year. There's always a premium in the U.S., and right now that premium is pretty much at all-time highs. So I do think global investors are looking for other places to put their money, but the catalysts are just not presented themselves. So you, you talked about dividend yield. You know, when you think about it, we've been essentially for 10 years in a zero interest rate environment and now globally we have a negative interest rate environment and maybe that's coming here and that may be one reason to explain why coke is trading 24 25 times or something but is that just a massive bubble waiting to burst at some point if we ever get to normalize interest rates well i don't i don't think the bubble is sitting in the dividend yielding stocks by any stretch i mean we've had a decade of growth out performance relative value if there's any bubble in the market right now i think it's in certain parts of timt things like entertainment things like software and it services where you've got no bleed valuations. You've also got unbelievably high allocations in hedge funds, the fast money trade to these areas of the market. So, you know, we don't deny that the fundamentals there are great, but everybody's already there. I'm much more worried about that part of the market. You don't think the Fed's going to cut in July? So, you know, I, I, I look at it from this way. Uh, the Fed has continued to tell us all they are data dependent, so let's look at the data. And what I think we saw today with the ISM data, for example, is that it's slowing, but it's not really turning negative yet. Now, we did have some lousy regional Fed surveys, but the actual data itself is not really you know, slipping into negative territory. I think they've got to provide a justification. Um, you know, we thought our, our, our House view was that maybe if the trade negotiations went badly at G20, that might force the Fed's hand. I think that was fine. I wouldn't say it was any kind of, you know, huge, huge positive, but it certainly wasn't a negative. Laurie, great to see you. Thanks for coming Thanks by. Thanks for Laura having Calvacina me. of RBC Capital Markets.
What do you make of sectors? So I, I, I don't like the uh, I don't like the financials. I, I think that that's been it, all. All the the picks are good, but they're market perform picks. I want something that's outperformed. So if you look at the home builders, mar- next, you mean they're market perform picks for you? Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. In your so, view? Yes, yeah, so for my view. And there's nothing wrong with them. They're all up about 14 percent or 15 percent, which is the market's up 16 percent. I like the home builders. I like that play. I like tech. I like staying in that. I do believe that the market can go higher from here. So I want to put a little bait on. So not a big fan of the defensive sectors. Um, like you said, I can't pay 25 times for sugar water that's growing earnings at 5-ish percent per year. Just not of any interest to me. I'd much rather get involved with companies that are going to be growing their earnings at a much faster pace, hopefully double digits. So med tech's an area we like right now. Um, software. So there's different areas that we like. Not a big fan of the defensive sector. Everybody's sectors. really piling up on your sugar water t- company. Look, Tim. I mean, you know, that's that's a reason why the stock continues to go higher because I think people have been questioning what Coke's doing. Like, I don't need to go to bat for Coca-Cola. The point is, uh, and I think Lori did a great job of framing stocks that are not in a bubble, as she put it, on other multiples. And, and I think there's no question Coca-Cola's been investing in other businesses, in vitamin waters and in other things. For no, Maybe one day they'll even be, you know, in, in cannabis. But th- these companies that are cash generative at a time when the rest of the world looks really nasty are places where investors are going to go. We've seen it the last five years. Chinese tech stocks are flying today and up sharply over the past month with trade tensions ease. And one China bull says it could be your best chance to buy. That's next. Plus, Tesla in high gear as Wall Street awaits the second quarter delivery numbers. We'll tell you what to expect. And is the one stock, stock that Mark Tupper says could deliver serious gains in the second half of the year. And yes, that is a hint. Get it. Deliver serious news. Mm. Catch his fast pitch later on in the show. We are live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla charging up ahead of the release of its delivery numbers, which are expected any day now. CEO Elon Musk has said it will be a record quarter for the electric car maker. Let's get to Phil LeBeau in Chicago with more on the story. Phil. And Melissa, they have pretty much telegraphed that they expect to meet the expectations that are out there on the street. Does that mean that they're going to come definitely over 90,000 vehicles and below 100,000 vehicles? Well, look, if it comes in at 88,000, I'm not sure a lot of people are going to punish them for that. The expectation, according to FactSet, is for deliveries of just under 91,000 vehicles. But the number of people are going to be focused on what happened with the Model uh, 3, the expectation there, a little over 74,000 vehicles. Despite the fact that Q2 deliveries will be roughly in line with expectations, we've noticed this quarter, especially after what happened in the first quarter, a real drop-off in the expectations from analysts when it comes to earnings for the uh, Q2, uh, or for the full year, we should point out. Started, what, down at $4.23 they expected to earn this year. That was on April 2nd. Then you had the terrible numbers for the first quarter. Then it dropped down to a loss of 78 cents, a loss of a buck 61. Now the consensus is for a loss of a dollar 83. And again, we've said this all day long, Melissa. People have been talking about, well, if they make these numbers in terms of deliveries, they should be good. Things should be fantastic in the eyes of investors, the bulls out there. Not necessarily. 
You want to see what happens with the Q2 deliveries when it comes to profit margins? Increasingly, there is a feeling on Wall Street that those margins are going to be under pressure in the second quarter because of them ramping up on the uh, production and the sales of those Model 3s. And as a result, when those earnings numbers come out at the end of this quarter, at the end of this month, or early next month, Melissa, that's going to be the focus. What happened with those profit margins? How much were they under pressure, uh, especially in the uh, second quarter? All right, Phil. And again, we should expect these uh, numbers any day now, any moment now, basically. Yeah, you know how this goes. I know. Could be tomorrow Very morning, big. could be Wednesday morning, <laughs> could be Wednesday night. You're never really sure. Sometime in the next day or two. Wednesday night would be an interesting one considering it's the day before a holiday, but, you know. Probably when we get we'll probably get them on July 4th. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau you in Chicago for us. So the expectations are, I mean, this is the expectations are high. The stakes are very high for the company at this point in terms of yeah. these delivery numbers. They have yeah. to hit. I, I think if you if you think about between ninety and hundred thousand, this is something that's never happened. This is a company that also continues to guide for three sixty to four hundred thousand deliveries for the year, which to me is extraordinary. The thing that, without rehashing the first quarter, which we all know was awful, um, the thing that was most awful about it was that S and X deliveries were were down uh, almost forty percent, and those are kind of the cash cows of the company. Those are the cars that actually make money. Uh, the Model Three as far as I can tell, um, as, as Phil pointed out, the margin here is the big story. I still think the balance sheet's a big story. And I, I think front-running demand, or I should say um, front-loaded demand, is really the question, uh, what happens in the second half of the year? And plus you have the tax credit going away, or c- cut in half today. Right. So thirty-seven fifty going down to eighteen seventy-five dollars till the year end, and then it goes, it goes to zero. Yep. So that's got to impact margins negatively as well. Or demand. You pull demand forward. Good, and, and you pull demand forward, and they're going to have to slash prices, I would assume, so it's going to impact margins. You could see a pop, though on a good delivery number, I would sell that. Q3 and Q4 is gonna be a much better indicator, just like Tim said. I mean, Q3 and Q4, that's where we're, we're right in the face of that fading tax credit. You have no new vehicles out. There's not any additional international tailwinds helping you out. So even if this number is fantastic, I still wouldn't get too excited about it. I think so Q3 bearish. and Q4. Dan, well, it's you also kind of laughable. Like you know, when Phil was just talking about their earnings or the consensus is for them to lose a dollar eighty-three in two thousand and nineteen on a gap basis, <laughs> it's a loss of five dollars. It's literally they're expected to lose eight hundred million dollars. So you know, the question is. Can they outrun a recession, you know what I mean, for their balance sheet, which I know you like to talk about, but also the demand aspect of it, too. Demand's huge. Yeah, so, I I mean, to me, it just seems like uh, the stakes are high, Mel, because, to your point, the stock has gone from 175 to 225 in a matter of weeks. Are you still short? Yeah, I'm still short. And and I just want to say this other thing. It's amazing to me we never talk about corporate governance here. We never talk about a company that should be trading at a massive discount, not a premium, a discount based upon not ever delivering what they say they're going to do. Enormous intransparency. Um, I don't know why investors put up with it, but, uh, you know, that's me. For more on Tesla, go to tradingnation.cnbc.com. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. Here's what else is coming up on Fast. The bat is leaving the cave. It sure is. Because for the trade truce, the so-called bats stocks are flying. And one strategist says, now is your best chance to buy. We've got the details. Plus, look at it, Chipotle. Keep an eye on the cannabis world. This Google. is Snap. This is Snap. Now you're throwing a little Bitcoin. Shake Shack's another one. You look at where that's trading versus Duncan. The millennial trade is heating up this year. And the resident fast money millennial, Mark Tepper, says there's one stock that's sitting at the party that's about to get turned. 
Find out the name when he delivers his fast pitch. There's much more fast money right after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Welcome back to Fast Money. China stocks breaking out today after the G20 meeting and adding to a rebound over the last month. Check out the BATS stocks. That's Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and Sina all flying. Our next guest says this could be your best chance to buy. Brendan Ahern is Chief Investment Officer at Crane Shares, which runs a suite of China-based ETFs. Brendan, great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. You're pointing out the discount uh, on a price-to-book basis of Shanghai shares versus U.S. shares. What has that, you said it's it's the cheapest relative to U.S. shares in 20 years. What has that told you in the past when you've reached this discount? As much as it emotionally can be difficult to buy, buying at the widest disparity ever has been a great entry point for these Chinese A shares like we hold in our KBA ETF. So we think it's a fantastic time for long-term investors to take a position today. When, were, when was the last time uh, you know, we've seen these sorts of discounts relative to U.S. stocks? And is it possible that U.S. stocks are simply overvalued and they should come down versus Chinese stocks going up to meet the U.S. valuations? It's not just on a relative basis. Uh, even in 20, the summer of 2015, Melissa, when we had a very sharp downturn in Chinese equities, uh, it never got to this level on a price-to-book basis. Even on a historical basis, I think you make a good point that part of this is on a relative basis, U.S. equities are relatively fully valued. But, but on a historical basis, we are below the long-run averages, which is another reason that validates our thesis on why we should be taking positions at these levels today. Does it matter what the economic data out of China is? I mean, if you take Kaishin PMIs, the lowest since January, I mean, does it matter what these external factors say surrounding this discount relative to U.S. stocks? I think this is, gets into our thesis of the tale of two Chinas, Melissa. When you look at manufacturing PMIs, they are unquestionably contracting. They are affected by the trade war. At the same time, when we look at the non-manufacturing PMI, like we did, like we got last night, still in an expansion territory, retail sales in the month of May were up 8.4% year over year. The Chinese consumer is alive and well. Fiscal stimulus is geared to raising domestic consumption. Hey, Brendan, it's Tim Seymour. And, and so just you may know, but just know I'm predisposed to, to liking this trade because I've been investing in emerging markets for 20 years. I will say you've actually got the EEM and you've got most of emerging markets trading at 10-year lows relative to the S&P as well. Uh, and all they've done every time is trade lower. Um, so why is this time going to be different? Because frankly, I, you can pick stocks and it sounds like you picked a few, but, but people could be cynical on this trade based upon history. I, I think, Tim, you bring up a good point. When you look at broad-based emerging markets, uh, ETFs like EEM, 
50% of the exposure in EEM is in financials, energy, industrials, and materials. That's a value orientation to broad-based emerging markets. What K-Web does for you is break out the domestic consumption story, the growth names. Those names, just like here in the U.S., are what's powering the market higher. You break those names out, I think you get a much better experience than buying the blob, buying broad-based EM. Brendan, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Brendan Ahern of Crane Shares. Tepper, you like the domestic Chinese story. I do. I do. Yeah. So I think you have to be selective here. I mean, it really hasn't paid to just be in broad emerging markets over the last several years. So I think you have to be specific. You have to be selective. I like Alibaba. I've talked about that before. Gives you exposure to that Chinese middle class, which is rising. Um, they've got a bunch of underlying businesses. They're still being viewed as just this e-commerce giant, but you know they do e-commerce. They've got financing. They've got cloud. So it's just really a great company to own. I like the Macau casino names and uh, gross gaming revenue was out mm-hmm. that beat, but I don't know how much of it had to do with that and had to do with better trade headlines today when you saw a win pop or a Las Vegas Sands pop. I like the Las Vegas Sands as a catch-up trade, even though it's up 18% year-to-date against a win, wins up 33% year-to-date, LVS. I like Tencent. And, and I, you know, you look at the peg ratios of some of the mega cap Chinese names versus things like Google and, and Amazon, um, much more attractive. Amazon might be the, the biggest incubator, tech incubator in the world that has um, some major cash flow generating businesses right now, major into gaming. So I like Tencent. Yeah, I would just mention that K-Web, what he was just talking about, gives you exposure to all those domestic consumer names is probably a decent way to do it because you don't have the idiosyncratic risk of one of those sorts of things. You know that they're not facing competition from generally from U.S. companies there and their web market, which is primarily mobile, is what, three, four X hours? You know what I mean? When you think about it. So I think this is a place that you have to be long term because because some of those favorite ones that you own here in the U.S. may never be in China. Yeah. yeah that, um, such as, you mean like a Google? Yeah. But, but you, you actually think that what, what's implied in your statement is that basically Google, Facebook, um, and, and Amazon are being shut out of China in the future. They're, not, they're not ever going to have meaningful market share. Well, they will. I mean, is that a fair assumption, at least for the immediate future? Well, I, Five years? I, I don't know. If you guys are telling me that I should start thinking about very different growth in China for all of those companies, um, then I don't think those companies should be trading where they are. I don't think the market has told you that they're going to get shut, shut out of China. Do you? The market well, has not told you that Facebook or Google is going to be. Well, shut it's out. actually no. an interesting time. No, I don't think so. Now if the tra- I, I mean, th- that could be actually be used to, to Tim's defense. That could be used as something with the trade war negotiations. Maybe that could change on a dime. But as it stands right now. The market is totally wait, wait, so are U.S. companies are going to make censored sites to give right, the data to China? No way. This is not this is not happening for for at least a decade. But, but you're telling me that the mega cap U.S. tech companies um, are shut out of China effectively right now. Well, Google. I think that Amazon, Facebook. I would say, and, and you think that's in the valuation? I don't at all. In other words, if you told me that those companies have zero growth coming from China and China-related um, right now, I'd say those, those are multiples that have significant room to the downside. Um, I, I, we all get the national champion you know, story, made in China 2025, one belt, one road. This is all about technology. I get that. That's, we all know that. Um, but, but if we think that U.S. tech companies are no longer going to have uh, access to that, the size of, of that market. I think it depends on which tech company. I mean, I think a company like Alphabet, will they want to be subject to censorship laws in China? They may not be technically shut out, but they may choose 
to shut themselves out because they don't want to be. Actually, we've got breaking news. President Trump is speaking right now to reporters at the White House. Actually, this happened moments ago after signing the humanitarian bill. Uh, let's uh, listen in. Fire. So no message to run whatsoever. Any reaction to the protests in Hong Kong today? In Hong Kong, I, I hope it gets solved. I was with President Xi of China. We had a great talk, a great discussion. We're talking about uh, doing something, and we talked about it briefly, but uh, it's very sad. I, I've rarely seen a protest like that. It's very sad to see. Um, will you be delaying the census, Mr. President? Where? Will you be delaying the census? Uh, the, the Supreme Court ruling on the census? Yeah, we're looking at that. Uh, we think that a census, obviously, uh, if, if you do all of this work, and you're talking about nobody can believe this, but they spend billions of dollars on the census, and you're not allowed to ask, you go knock on doors of houses, check houses, you go through all this detail, and you're not allowed to ask whether or not somebody is a citizen, so you can ask other things, but you can't ask whether or not somebody's a citizen. So we are trying to do that. We're looking at that first one. And why, oh, I'm sorry, if I could follow up. Why do you think it's so important that that question be asked? I think it's very important to find out if somebody's a citizen as opposed to an illegal. I think that there's a big difference to me between being a citizen of the United States and being an illegal. And you know, the Democrats want to treat the illegals with health care and with other things better than they treat the citizens of our country. If you look at a coal miner that has black lung disease, you're talking about people that get treated better than the coal miner. And these people got sick working for the United States, and we treated people that just walked in better. You look at what they're doing in California, how they're treating people. They don't treat their people as well as they treat illegal immigrants. So at what point does it stop? It's crazy what they're doing. It's crazy. And it's mean, and it's very unfair to our citizens. And we're going to... Stop it. But we may need an election to stop it, and we may need to get back the House. Yes. Mr. President, when will, when will the round of, of trade talks with China begin after your agreement over the It's already begun. Are they meeting yeah, already? already begun. They're speaking very much on phone, but they're also meeting. Yeah, it's essentially already begun. It actually began before our meeting. But do you know when the, the Lighthizer will sit Whatever down? Whatever it takes. Look, if we don't make a great deal, if we don't make a fair deal, it has to be better for us than for them because they had such a big advantage for so many years. In other words, you can't make a 50-50 deal when somebody else has been absolutely, I've been talking about this for years. China made, we had a surplus, meaning they did on us, of $507 billion. It's been hundreds of billions of dollars a year for many, many years. So obviously, we can't make a 50-50 deal. It has to be a deal that is somewhat tilted to our advantage. And if we're not going to do that, we're taking in a fortune from tariffs. And unfortunately, we're hurting China by doing that because many of their companies are leaving and going to a non-tariff state so they don't have to pay the tariffs. And the other misconception about China, and I think you read an article today in the Wall Street Journal about it, well, people aren't paying for those tariffs. In that case, certainly, China's paying for them, and those companies are paying for them. China devalued their currency very substantially. And they also put a lot of money into their economy. They're pouring money. It's fake money, but it's money. And they're pouring money into their economy to take care of the tariffs. Some people are you don't have increased inflation. You have no increased inflation. But I'll tell you what is happening. Our Treasury is taking in billions and billions of dollars of money that normally would be for China. So we'll see what happens. We hope that we can make a deal, but it's got to be a fair deal. 
We had a deal, as far as I was concerned. And then at the last moment, China decided they didn't like that deal. And they changed it. It's all right. Then I said, you're going to pay 25% tariffs on $250 billion. And did President Xi said he would move on some of those issues that were disputable? Yeah, I, I expect him to move. And if he doesn't move, that's okay, too. I'm very happy either way. But I think we have a good chance of making a deal. I think they want to make a deal because they're losing many companies that are leaving because of the tariffs, because they don't want to pay the tariffs. So they're losing many companies. They're moving to Vietnam. And by the way, some are moving back to the United States where they belong. Mr. President, so, do you guys have tanks for Fort Lauderdale? Well, now they are because I think the president's doing a great job. He put 16,000 people in this weekend and uh, they're forming, but they're, you know, getting to the border. They're doing a great job. And he has 6,000 people at the border with Guatemala. So, I mean, it's been way down. It's cut way down. You'll start to see the numbers over the next three four. You didn't get it, but you're going to continuously reassess. So, are you absolutely taking No, no, that's true. Yeah, they don't do it, but they're doing a good job. Right now, they're doing a very good job. We're very happy with the job they're doing. No, it's because of tariffs that they're doing it, but what, the point is they're doing a very good job, and he's very smart to do it, because that's a tiny fraction. It sounds like a lot of soldiers, but that's a fraction of what tariffs would cost Mexico. But I very much appreciate it. And he's doing a great job for Mexico, because the Mexican people were very upset with all of these tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people walking through Mexico. And the people of Mexico are just as happy as I am with what they're doing. Well, I don't know what they're saying about members of Congress. I know that the Border Patrol is not happy with the Democrats in Congress. I will say the Republicans do want border security. The Democrats want open borders. Open borders means tremendous crime. If you look, there was a report that came out where approximately 600 people in the last caravan were serious criminals. I don't want them in our country. So the Border Patrol, they're patriots, they're great people. They love our country. They know what's coming in. And you know who knows it better than anybody? Hispanics. Hispanics love what I'm doing. Because number one, they don't want to lose their job. They don't want to take a pay cut. And very importantly, most importantly, they don't want to have crime. They understand it. The people that understand the border the best are Hispanics. They understand it better than anybody. And they don't want to have to suffer crime. And they don't want to take a pay cut. They don't want to lose their job. That's why my poll numbers went way up with Hispanics, because they really understand the border the best of anybody. Okay. Mr. President, are you going to have tanks out on 4th of July at the Lincoln Memorial for your speech? We're going to have a great 4th of July in Washington, D.C. It'll be like no other. It'll be special. And I hope a lot of people come. And it's going to be uh, about this country. And it's a salute to America. And I'm going to be here, and I'm going to say a few words, and we're going to have planes going overhead, the best fighter jets in the world, and other planes, too. And we're going to have some tanks stationed outside. Got to be pretty careful with the tanks, because the roads have a tendency not to like to carry heavy tanks, so we have to put them in certain areas. But we have the brand-new Sherman tanks, and we have the brand-new uh, Abram tanks, and we have uh, some incredible equipment, military equipment on display, brand-new. And uh, we're very proud of it. You know, we're making a lot of new tanks right now. We're building a lot of new tanks in Lima, Ohio, uh, a great tank factory that people wanted to close down until I got elected and I stopped it from being closed down. 
and now it's a very productive facility. And they do nobody. It's the greatest tank in the world. Do you think that you can give a speech that can reach all Americans? I think so. I think so. I think I've reached most Americans. Most Americans want no crime. Most Americans want a strong military. They want good education. They want good health care. Uh, if you look at pre-existing conditions, the Republicans are going to save pre-existing conditions. The Democrats won't be able to do it. What the Democrats' plan is is going to destroy the country, and it's going to be horrible health care. Horrible health care. And everybody's taxes are going to go to 95 percent. And by the way, that's not enough. But the taxes, if they ever did what they want to do, your taxes go to 95 percent, and that isn't nearly enough. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you, Thank you, Thank you, Thank you right this way. Uh, the United States traditionally supported democracy movements, struggles around the world. Do you have a, a message covering those demonstrators who say they want more democracy in China is not democracy? Well, they're looking for democracy, and I think most people want democracy. Uh, unfortunately, some governments don't want democracy, but that's what it's all about. It's all about democracy. There's never been anything better. And I think we're the best example of it right here in the United States. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, guys. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, Bryce. Let's get moving. Thanks. That was President Trump speaking to reporters after he signed the humanitarian aid bill. He spoke about a wide range of issues, including those Hong Kong pro protests, uh, which took a more violent turn today on the anniversary of the handover back uh, to China. He said that was very sad to see. Uh, he did speak about the China trade deal and how he believes that China needs to make a deal because they're losing a lot of money because businesses are going elsewhere, such as Vietnam, because of those tariffs. He also made the point of saying that the U.S. Treasury is uh, is a uh, bringing in billions of dollars in tariffs that would otherwise go to China. But aside from all that, let's talk about China trade. We were talking about um, Tim Cook moving production of the MacBook back to China. And I thought that was a very interesting signal to send ahead of, or around the same time of the G20, but ahead of any sort of deal that was made. Yeah, I, I think it's very clear. I mean, we've seen this time and time again that the idea of moving to kind of lower cost production places don't really work. Maybe the headline makes some sense, but the idea of moving your entire supply chain that, you know, uh, to Vietnam or, or Mexico or whatever it is, it's just a really hard thing. It's going to take a lot of time. And I think a lot of these announcements have just been really window dressing in, in a time where a lot of these companies have to be very careful in their dance between the U.S. government and, and China, because those relationships are very, very important. It took them decades to make those relationships as far as their supply chains are concerned. So the idea of just kind of letting them go by the wayside doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. I, I think companies have to do their due diligence in trying to move their supply chains because they don't want to be caught as reliant on China going forward. So if anything, you're going to see, whether it's incremental at first or whether it takes a year or two or three or four, People are going to move, companies are going to move their production away from China, whether it takes two or four years. I mean, we saw that with Cisco's earnings. He specifically said that over the past six months, they're working out how to move parts of their supply chain outside of China to be not so reliant. And of course, Cisco had a very good quarter with very good guidance. Yeah, I mean, we, we've been so lost on just the trade dynamic and, and really haven't gotten into the details. And we're going to start getting into the details to see the cost on margins for companies to have to rebuild some of this infrastructure. So all great points. Uh, it's a global supply chain. It, it's, it's a global supply chain. So um, if, if, if it's not, you know, if it's the U.S. that's being cut off from China, but no one else is, at some point that will also have an impact for us. Um, there's no question that U.S. companies, as, as Steve and Dan are talking about, have to become more resilient in this environment. And, you know, it, you're seeing that. What I don't think investors have seen is, is the impact on margins yet. And, in fact, I, I don't think they've 
even come close to seeing it, especially in an environment where you've got a deflation tailwind, and, and that's actually mitigating a lot of these factors. Right. So that truce is a good thing, but the longer this drags on, companies are still in that same position where they're battling these extra costs yes, and correct. margins are compressed. Correct. And the truce is a good thing, but I, I think what, what Trump's really doing right here is, is he's negotiating back and forth right now. And it's in his best interest, if he wants to get reelected next year, to get two or three rate cuts and to have a trade deal done going into 2020. So he's slow playing this whole thing right now. I mean, that's that's my biggest takeaway from what's happening. We've got a news alert on Apple. Speaking of Apple, CEO Tim Cook responding in a fiery email to the Wall Street Journal report on Johnny Ives' departure. Let's get to Josh Lipton in San Francisco with the latest. Josh. Yeah, that's right, Melissa. So Apple CEO Tim Cook has written this email to NBC News in response to that journal article, and it is tough. So let me bring it to you. Cook saying this story, is, in his words, is absurd. A lot of the reporting and certainly the conclusions just don't match with reality. At a base level, it shows a lack of understanding about how the design team works and how Apple works. It distorts relationships, decisions, and events to the point that we just don't recognize the company it claims to describe. Goes on to say the design team is phenomenally talented and the projects they're working on uh, will blow you away. He's referring to this article, the Wall Street Journal, the departure of Johnny Ive, its design chief. And it was a hard article, a tough article, said uh, that Johnny Ive had become distant and frustrated with Apple, a, a company that was more focused on, on operations than product design. We should mention the journal says it stands by its reporting. And very unusual for Cook to come out swinging like this on a report, but clearly felt um, strongly enough about it that, that he decided to send this email to NBC News, Melissa. All right, Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton in San Francisco with the latest. Dan, you know what? The, I mean, this raises the concern or underscores the concern that has been going on for some time, that Apple is losing its sight on innovation, that it's sort of falling behind. It's not as innovat- innovative as it could be. Yeah, I, I, listen, I think a lot of investors have gotten pretty comfortable with the fact that their products are going to be, you know, evolutionary, um, you know, whether it's the smartphone, whether it's an iPad, whether it's, a, you know, a Mac. Really what people want to see is that rabbit that they pull out of the hat every 10 years, some new product that's going to basically remake make an entire industry. And we've seen them do that time and time again over the last 20 years. So I think that investors, if you're upset about a guy like Johnny Ive not being there, it's because he's not going to be a part of that next thing. And he's been a very important part of the last few. Um, I'll just make one point. That's fine that Tim Cook writes that letter. Until Johnny Ive comes out and does it, right. I mean, who, who really cares? So, so right. And if anything, look, Tim, Tim Cook has, has done a phenomenal job in transitioning from a leader that was impossible to follow. Um, but, but Tim's Cook reputation and really what he's, I think, uh, done a fantastic job at Apple for is not around design. It's around being a chief operating officer. It's about understanding the dynamics of how to run the company that's now uh, a, a global company, the capital markets. So it almost seems as if this has been a personal thing for Tim Cook uh, and clearly writing that letter uh, to show that Apple's design is a vertically integrated team um, and that ultimately it doesn't rest on one person. It's very important to, to know that Apple is the one creating the design. But they haven't created any new designs in years, right? I mean, the iPhone was the last big product they had, then an iPad. I mean, they watch. Right. They still don't have a touchscreen laptop. Like, that just blows my mind. Everyone else has touchscreen laptops, and that's probably so they don't cannibalize the iPad sales, but come on, get with it already. And plus, I mean, they're now, they're starting to shift over to a services-based company anyways, right? So that really should be the main focus. Coming up, semi skyrocketing today, but one trader just bet the, group, bet the group is about to short out. We've got the details. More Fast Money right after this. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. We've been talking about trade truths all hour. And one of the biggest winners today was the semiconductors, up nearly 3%. That's just the cherry on top of what has been a fantastic few weeks for the group, up 15% as a whole. Micron, NVIDIA, Broadcom, Xilinx, AMD, all up double digits. But one options trader is making a big bet. One of these names is about to short out. So, Dan, head over to the plaza. Oh, yeah, sure, Mel. Um, It's in advanced micro devices, AMD, today, and put volume was one and a half times um, that of calls. And there was an interesting trade that kind of caught my eye shortly afternoon today when the stock was trading like 3130. There was a buyer of 10,000 of the August 2nd. 28 puts. That's going to cover their earnings announcement, which should come in the last week um, of July. Um, but here's the thing. Here's a stock that's massively outperformed the whole space. It's up 70% of the year. It's almost up 100% from its 52-week lows. One of the things I would just mention is that while a lot of names that we know and we talk about quite frequently have underperformed the broad market, um, AMD has massively outperformed much smaller market cap than some of the others that we talk about, uh, Intel and NVIDIA quite frequently. But here's one thing. Let's go to this chart right here. This thing has been a really nice stair step. It's been holding um, that uptrend from the December lows here, and the sentiment's been very positive. We know that they have um, a lead on some chips with Intel. They're releasing some new ones this week. But by the same token, some really kind of bad press last week uh, in the Wall Street Journal, again, getting blasted by their CEO. AMD CEO is just saying how they've been very cooperative with organizations or companies in China that are very cozy with the Chinese military. But this thing obviously looks kind of poised to go here despite a trader buying those puts. This is the 20-year chart here, and you can see that it's been a very volatile name, especially over the last year. There's been some massive um, moves up and moves lower. And lastly, let's just go to the SMH, the ETF that tracks the semiconductor group. Um, This is how this thing opened over near 116, spent the whole day going down. So while it closed up nearly 3%, it closed about 2.5% from those highs. It looked like traders were kind of um, anticipating some sort of news that would gap this thing up. And this is just the chart year to date of the SMH. Obviously, it had a pretty nice um, decline here. It's come back about 20%. But this is really, I think, what you want to focus on near term as you're looking at the semiconductor group as we go into earnings. Don't forget, just a few weeks ago, we had this really disappointing earnings report and guidance from Broadcom. Last week, Micron had decent results, basically calling possibly a bottom in the second half of the year. This is going to continue to be a battleground group until we have some definitive color on trade with China and obviously global growth. Um, Mark, you said you like tech because it's cyclical. Do you like semis? It's up about 27%-ish for the year. I do. So my favorite pick here is NVIDIA. So with NVIDIA, you really get good best-of-breed exposure to all the highest growth end markets we want to be a part of, from autonomous vehicles to AI, data center, gaming. Uh, They had some problems. They had some issues with regards to crypto exposure that they've kind of cleaned out. So I think at this point right now, the risk-reward profile looks very good with NVIDIA. I'll take the other side of, uh, I'll be a bear on Micron. Micron, to me, Guy and I always talk about this, uh, DRAM is responsible for over 60% of the revenue stream. I haven't seen anything constructive in DRAM happening other than the fact that it's flatlined, and that does not tell me that Micron should have jumped 26%. I'd be a seller here. All right, for more options action, full show Friday, the day after July 4th. We've got a full show, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. trade around the horn we go tim yeah there's a big company in atlanta that makes carbonated drinks she's Sugar got water. high single digit eps growth coca-cola 
Jennifer. Constellation Brands, one of the few staples we can get behind. They're doing a great job innovating within their product for- portfolio. Steve. TJ Maxx up 18%. It does well when there's negative headlines in trade, does well when there's positive headlines in trade. TJX. So this sugar water thing, I mean, let's be frank. This is like the anti-millennial trade here. They're on the wrong side of history. Who cares about that? Water Who cares about that? I mean, it's all, it's, it's all about you know, the plastic's anyway. no good now these days. You don't want the Give plastic. Us a trade. Hey, listen, I was a seller in the SMH, sorry, uh, at 103. At 113, I'm still a seller. That's us for us. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.